0: Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. You're here with Trainer Wheels and Cyber Sue today. It's just the two of us. It's been such a long time. It feels like years. It does feel like years. So much happens in life, doesn't it? But we've got two really excellent guests today. I feel very, very privileged to have two of my oldies with me. So um, we've got um, the two very different guests. So it's going to be quite a segmented type of show. But we've got Jessica Shepherd. Um, Jessica, Jessica is in a very long titled role. She is the Gippsland Operational Community Engagement Liaison Coordinator for Ambulance Victoria. Did I get the order of that right?
1: Yeah, you did. Uh, say that 10 times in a row and see how you go.
0: <laughs> Surely there's an acronym we can invent in the next hour.
1: Yeah, there is OCALC, but um, everyone forgets Ooh. that one too. They just call me the ABCD. So, <laughs> Well,
0: welcome, OCALC. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, no, it's absolutely great. Great, and so o is in what we call an ALS Amber, which is an um, advanced life support paramedic. Mm-hmm. And um, we're really looking forward today to finding out actually what is the life of a paramedic? What's that all about? What do you do beyond being an ambulance driver? <laughs> <laughs> That does look really fun yeah, it does. <laughs>
1: oh yes uh, it's the novelty hasn't worn off
0: yet. <laughs> I won't tell you about the time when I ex- accidentally drove an ambulance into another ambulance <laughs> in another role in Hong Kong but um, that's why I can not get a job here <laughs> wow. I kind of want to hear that one maybe off air. <laughs> but anyway we'll have a great chat with you in a minute Jessica and we've got Professor Peter as a party now, that's very, very grown up. Now, I know only,
1: only
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Peter is a um, PhD and medical doctor, so he's a lot of things. And the last time I saw you, Peter, I am sure you had grapes stuck up your nose. <laughs>
2: Good morning. Great to be here.
0: (laughs) And welcome. And we've also got Seb as a party. So um, Seb is our youngest ever on-show guest. So welcome, Seb, to radio. And um, it's great to have you in the studio with us. Seb's got a medal too, so we're amongst really um, esteemed, absolutely esteemed guests. Yeah. So this is wonderful. Now, Peter is a, um, he leads, this is incredible, he leads an international program of research focusing on adolescent health and wellbeing. And I'm really interested to hear about that because I also, we haven't talked about it yet, but, Adolescence surely is a very different thing around the world and has very different definitions than let's say the developing versus the first world. So I really am looking forward to hearing what um, Peter's got to talk with us about. And he's also done and had an incredible career um, in Australia too, working in um, youth justice, Aboriginal community-controlled health, um, youth homeless and a heap of stuff. So you can't say that Peter followed the traditional trajectory of medicine in Australia. That's
2: right. Thanks, Suze.
0: <laughs> <laughs> which I really love. So um, both both um, Jessica and Peter are real um, beautiful, authentic people. Um, so great to have them both. Seeing them both again today, and um, talk to you soon. But first, we should head off with some what some news train wheels. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah.
3: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R, or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews. Head to the RRR website at rrr.org.au.
4: News time, Dr Doctor News. I, um, Hello, it's Training Wheels here. I'm, as always, really uh, well prepared and um, have just read an article five minutes ago that I'm going to talk about. (laughs) I saw it in ABC online this morning and it's about flu. You would have seen in the news... Over the last few weeks, we're seeing a lot of pretty nasty flu this season, and this article gave a nice summary of sort of what's been going on. So there's, you know, been quite a few hundred thousand cases this winter, and I think that it looks like it's peaking because the um, a, a large number of those have been just in the last fortnight, and the numbers of flu cases is in keeping with a regular flu season. But the, what's different this year is that it seems to be affecting children and adolescents more than usual. So um, there was really tragic news a couple of – I can't remember if it was last week or the week before – of a few deaths of some young people from flu in, I think, New South Wales and Queensland. And um, a Professor Azapati may be able to contribute to this as uh, with his paediatrician hat on. But the, the article was saying that there's been huge numbers of presentations to paediatric emergency departments, with kids with really severe cases of flu. And um, this article was essentially saying, you know, ideally we really should be focusing on vaccination. I think flu flu vaccine gets neglected a little bit. It's one of those ones that you have to get every year and and people forget to do that. It's another thing on the list. But unfortunately it's actually a bit too late. If people haven't had their flu vax for the year, it's not really going to help them this flu season now. So this article was saying that we really should be focusing now on antivirals. And the, the problem with antivirals for flu is they, um, they need to be taken within the first 48 hours of onset of symptoms. So it's a little bit urgent once you get those symptoms. You've got to get off to the GP quite quickly to get a prescription for those antivirals. The good thing is you don't actually have to have proven flu, so you don't have to wait for your swab to come back before you can get the antivirals. And you can, depending on your GP and their, their practice and preferences, it's possible to get the script via telehealth. So as soon as you get those symptoms, if they're looking like they're pretty nasty, the the takeaway message is please don't hesitate, please try and book in with your GP as soon as you can, and if you um, are open to taking some antivirals, the evidence is that it reduces the duration of flu symptoms, and and in some cases it can reduce the severity and prevent hospitalisation. That's kind of up for debate depending on which antiviral and which population, but it's not a bad thing. It's it's not going to do any harm. Mm -hmm. Prof, as a party, do you have anything to add I'm just Pete's putting you on the spot here. Pete. Um, Pete. Petey. Petey Pete. Yeah. Pete.
2: <laughs> Pete, Pete. Um, I think we throw the term flu around a lot. Mm. Um, but influenza is a very serious viral infection and we can prevent it with with vaccination. So if you can be vaccinated, absolutely please do. Um, there are terrific resources out there. Um, so the Royal Children's Hospital um, has terrific resources around flu vaccination. Um, and I know Prof Margie Danken um, has just recently posted some stuff up on the Royal Children's Hospital around around that. So, you know, really great information. So please do. Prevention is better than cure.
4: Absolutely. And and the the sad thing that's come out of this kind of news story is that vaccination rates are quite low. In fact, lowest among, I think, the 5 to 14-year-old age group. So do – I know I have two young kids. I know it's hard. I know there's a million things to do and it's another thing on your list. But please, please do take your kids off to get their flu vaccine each year because yep. it does help.
0: That's me. That's you. So my little news story is um, from the 1st of August, um, there's been a change to prescribing rights for the termination pill and um, it's, it's a change that... Termination um, of pregnancy? Termination of pregnancy. Right, sorry, a key detail. The <laughs> <laughs> termination of pregnancy pill is that um, traditionally, obviously, this has been prescribed by doctors, but there's been a shift where um, nurse practitioners with, um, or others with um, appropriate qualifications and training, which includes nurse practitioners, will be able to prescribe the uh, termination of pregnancy pill. And this is after um uh, it's been a, this pill's been in place for um around eleven years already in Australia. Um and I guess I guess what's interesting about this is that access to healthcare in many parts of Australia is, of course, becoming increasingly difficult. And it's timely to review who's providing what healthcare and if it's the most appropriate. Some people applaud um, the fact that nurse practitioners with the appropriate training can um, prescribe this pill, but then some have concerns that there's not the right regulations or safety factors in place. And I guess... What what it kind of springs to mind is that as long as we do have the right infrastructure, the right safety and so on, that a lot of health care can be provided by different people. I know mm. that about two years ago, we um, had to talk about what paramedics um, could be doing and have started to do. And I know that Jessica will talk about this today, like, for example, in palliative care or in some mental health where um, perhaps there's a bit of a shift in who's providing what care. And... I think it's a great thing. I think it's, you know, it's mm. very difficult to get into your GP. Um, GPs are very, very overrun. They don't have time to provide um, holistic care or a lot of the follow-up. They're just so so foot to the ground that there's other practitioners who may be actually better placed to provide this. It's not a backward step. It's actually a positive forward step, in my opinion, with the right structure around it. Completely agree.
2: Completely agree. Completely agree.
0: Yeah, agreed as well. (laughs) Oh, well, that's boring. (laughs) Sorry. Consensus. (laughs) Wow. Surely you can have a bit of an argument with me about this. (laughs) But it has been in the news. There's been different opinions, but, you Mm. know, watch this space, I think, in a lot of different parts of medicine moving forward. I think things like termination of pregnancy,
4: more access can never be a bad thing, you know. As you say, with the appropriate training and resourcing, obviously we need to have that safety net. But <clears throat> it's something that access is, you know, probably nine tenths of the barrier to receiving he- the safe and timely healthcare that people need in those sorts of situations. Yeah. And if extending prescribing rights to more qualified people can improve that access that's a great thing
0: exactly and in some in many parts of um, regional australia the nurse is the most experienced most qualified healthcare professional there is um and may well be quite well known <clears throat> in the community a trusted
4: member of the community which helps exactly well. right so
0: they can provide the pre cu- the pre kind of counseling and support the during and then the after the follow-up so there can be a lot more longitudinal care for the person and the family um and especially because as it stands um Around one, one to four percent, so one to four in a hundred people who have a um, medical termination of pregnancy, it still um, ends up that there's some surgical intervention mm. needed. So there are still some complications at times where, if you've got someone involved in the longer term, that can be identified early and prevented potentially. Exactly right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Completely agree. Pete?
4: I
2: was just going to add in the global context, you know, in the last week, we've just had the conference in Rwanda, um, Women Deliver. Which really, you know, was focusing on advocating for sexual reproductive health and rights for um, all of you know the world's women and and girls, and um, you know clearly there's been a lot of unwinding of progress that's been made around access to safe abortion in many countries, Um, and part of that's been as a response to some of the conservative you know policy changes that have happened in the US and and sort of flow on to funding. Um, So I think that. It's terrific to see that in Australia, you know, we are able to have these, you know, progressive discussions and really to try to remove any barriers that we can to um, to women and girls accessing, you know, safe therapeutic abortion when they need it.
4: Yep, absolutely. And it's it's important to keep that global context, yeah. isn't it? That it's – we're lucky here. <laughs> we're
0: lucky. Yeah. Excellent. Sorry, you go, CyberSouth? Yeah, well, I was just thinking, why don't we do a couple of announcements and then – We'll be speaking with Jessica Shepherd coming right up. Sounds like a plan. See you in a sec.
3: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Jessica Shepard, as I mentioned, is the
0: Gippsland Operational Community Engagement Liaison Coordinator for Ambulance (laughs) Victoria. And um, Jessica did not travel up from Gippsland today, I'm glad to say. Um, But still a fair trek over from uh, Belgrave. But... um, I've had the pleasure of knowing Jess since she was a wee lass, um, well before she became an ambo. And um, for about the, I guess for about, it must be about the last 15 years that I've been lucky enough to be invited to their annual family Christmas um, with the Shepherds um, down in Menian and Gippsland. And um, I guess that's. um, because um, because of the connection with um, Jessica's lovely granddad, Collie Boy, as I like to call him, Colin, um, down in Menian. And um, very sadly, earlier this year, Jessica and her family lost Collie Boy. And um, he was 92, is that right? Uh, he was 96. 96, <laughs> wow. And he was fighting fit. He was an amazing fellow. And uh, I guess I guess on air, Jess, and um, for others who are in a similar situation, I guess I really want to acknowledge you and your family Um you know, Sherman, your dad and Paul and Annie and yourself for everything you did to um really look after Colin in those um final days, weeks and months. And for the most part you really kept him at home and you did a beautiful job of looking after him.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. And um yeah, thanks for acknowledging well, my granddad. Um, yeah. he was a brilliant man. I'm sure we all got some wonderful life advice from him over the years. I know I remember it and implementing a lot of that in my life. Um yeah, definitely acknowledging well my granddad took care of my Nana for a lot of years and um, my family really wanted to repay him for the care that he showed my grandma, uh, my Nana at the time. And yeah, certainly my uh, uncle, aunts and dad were very, very um, involved in his care and made sure his wishes were, you know, right until the end. Um, I also want to acknowledge the palliative care team that really cared for our family and um, showed us a lot of support and, of course, in my normal role, we um, kind of see palliative, the palliative care team in a professional capacity, um, but being on the other side of the fence uh, was very different and I, really, um, I was really grateful for the care they showed my family and um, it's really changed aspects of my care and uh, how I attend patients uh, under the palliative care team. And um, yeah, so I'm very, very grateful for all their help. So, yeah.
0: Mm. And that's so, it's so nice to hear, and it's so um, uh, nice to acknowledge them. So, thanks for that. Palliative care is um, an incredible service across Victoria and Australia, and I know through the Gippsland region as well. Yeah. Um, and don't we all find that when we have some kind of personal experience, how it changes the way that we practice in health and medicine as well?
1: Oh, it's, it's yeah. it really not that you want to be on the other side of it more often than not, but it is um, a positive out of that that you can really understand. The emotions and the difference, and I've had my own health scares as well over the over years, and been attended by colleagues, and mm. uh, yeah, it's it's very different being on the other side, and you very much appreciate that um, the person behind the you know
0: quote job, absolutely, uh, yeah. yeah, the real people, yes, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess um, moving moving into what you do on a day to day basis, what is it that actually why did you become an ambo? If we're allowed, are we allowed to use that term? Like, is that appropriate? Or? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, that's fine. I've I've heard
0: worse. <laughs> oh, we want to hear that.
1: Uh, I don't know if it's appropriate to say on air. Some of the things I've
0: been called, especially with the child in the room. Yeah. Right? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I might have to bleep some of that out. So, <laughs> no. No, you know, I I really love my job and I started I wanted to be in a care profession um and what um I love about this role is uh well my operational role is uh being able to be the kind of frontline um beginning and transition into the healthcare system. Uh so we see people in, you know, some of the worst days of their lives and Um, it's a real privilege to be welcomed into somebody's home, um, and told things that they might have never told their closest family and friends and really trust you, uh, with this really confidential private information, um, trust you with their child. They'll hand their child over to you and put their full faith that you're going to care for them. And, uh, it's, it's a very unusual, uh, privileged position that I don't, um, You know, I make sure I appreciate as much as I can.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: So, and if we can, you know, we can't always help, but if we can, even if it's just a, you know, giving somebody a cup of tea or, you know, saving their lives, whatever it is. uh, Yeah. I appreciate the absolute trust and faith that they have in us. And hopefully we make their lives better than when they called us.
4: I love that you say, I mean, I don't love that this is true, but that your job involves being part of someone's story on what's probably the worst day of their lives. I think that's so important and it's often forgotten. In in medicine and, and sounds like you know it, it's obviously a huge part of paramedic medicine too, and you know working in a hospital sometimes we forget you know it's just our day to day it's our jobs and the people that we're looking after and their families it's probably the worst thing they've ever that's ever happened to them yeah. uh, and I just think that's so important to keep that in mind when we're communicating with families and and loved ones and and patients just that it's we are in such a special privileged position
0: absolutely and i guess i used to work in emergency department and so we used to have people coming through in all sorts of different kind of uh states of emergency and but of course you're there before that mm. you're there like it's a whole different world absolutely. like you've met, you've you've done the hard work of getting people to some degree stabilized before they get to us in the emergency department
1: yeah it's it's a often an uncontrolled environment and i think um In a a way, that's kind of what I enjoy about it as well, is that every day is quite different and you really have to think on your toes and um, you could have two people suffering a similar condition, but they're going to the context of their lives and the way they present and the situation around each individual case is going to be completely different and require different skills and, um, you know, management. So, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's very yeah. different every single day.
0: And I guess from, you know, from our kind of you could call it layman's perspective, we think about ambulance uh about paramedics racing around and with their with their sirens going and so on. Is, what, what's a kind of a typical day for a paramedic? Uh so yeah, that's definitely
1: part of it is that, um, you know, but uh, obviously safe, safely.
0: <laughs> I presume you do some special training for that kind of driving. We, we do. We do
1: emergency driving uh, skills. Yes, absolutely. Um, but, you know, and certainly we go to the life, you know, saving events with, yeah, sirens blaring and everyone sees those ambulances all day, every day. But, but we also go to um, less emergent, you know, kind of less acute type conditions as well. Like a lot of the times we'll be there to help, um, you know elderly person who's fallen mm. over or um, you know maybe somebody's passed away and they're not necessarily in need of CPR but we're just there to help the family or um, you know oh, many many day-to-day different things um, we don't always have to go to hospital either that's mm. the other thing I think is mm. kind of maybe a myth or a misconception um, certainly maybe back in the day where you know everyone was just a you know, we chuck them in the back like 30, 50 years ago when the ambulance services first started. But now we um, are kind of more of a health service. Um, so uh, we have a kind of a lot of things implemented to allow for different pathways depending on what the individual needs, uh, Which so it's a more like, yeah, patient-centred approach, I, I guess. Um, so, for example, if you call 000, uh, we have a referral system that, Uh, They'll listen to what is needed by the, you know, through their individual circumstances, maybe refer on to a GP or a locum or um, give you advice to manage whatever condition it is at home, um, whatever's needed for you. Um, Additionally, even if we do attend, we have other resources that we can help refer on as well. Um, So it's not just, you know, you chuck people in the back and off you go. Um, It's really considering what they're, conditions are and what their family is and the needs of that individual
0: that is so interesting so I have to say I didn't realize that so if I run triple zero and get through to the ambulance service I might not necessarily assume to get an ambulance arrive
1: correct Yep, yeah, correct so it, it's really dependent so I think it's like uh one in five calls to triple zero don't need an emergency response mm-hmm. um so our referral systems uh I think uh, so, like around twenty percent of calls, um, they manage to refer on to other uh, uh, facilities or uh, advice. As I said, um, and which is really good for the patient that they're not just going to end up in hospital when they don't need it. It's really um, considering. Uh, so we do what's called safety netting as well. We make sure that whatever systems we refer on to is um, accessible by that person and suitable for their individual needs and their family's needs or carers'
0: needs. And the two things that immediately come to mind is, um, and I'm sure you can give other examples, but and they're very different, but palliative care and also mental health calls.
1: Yeah, so uh, we've got a few... Um, Systems in place. So palliative care, uh, obviously there's the palliative care teams, which I mentioned were really fantastic. Uh, unfortunately not available all the time, um, you know, resourcing and things as, as every industry faces. Um, so particularly out of hours overnight, um, if a family needs some support, um, they can definitely call triple zero. Um, we have a couple of pathways we can attend and help them out. Um, I know with my family, you know, referring back to grandad, Um, I helped set up a medication management system so it was all recorded and um, they knew exactly what um, how to draw up the medications and which we're absolutely happy to help with. Um, We also have another system in place which isn't just for palliative care patients um, but is one element of it called VVED Um, so I'm not sure if you've any of the ED related um, professions in this room have heard of VVED so that's through the northern um, and we can actually do telehealth conferences with either an ed doctor or nurse practitioner um, who can prescribe medications give advice um, and particularly needed you know in times where maybe the patient is suffering some what we call like breakthrough pain or some shortness of breath or some presenting with an acute condition that they don't necessarily need to go to hospital in fact it would be like more uncomfortable for them to go on hosp- into hospital, but the family just might need a bit of support in managing their mm-hmm. whatever condition at home. So, absolutely, you're welcome to call us if you can't get
4: onto palliative care. Yeah, I want to talk a bit more. Cybersu's asked you um, how you got into paramedicine yourself and i've often wondered if it attracts people with sort of a short attention span <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> who sort of
4: thrive in who sort of thrive in chaos i say that with love i, say that with love. Uh,
1: I uh, completely understand
4: uh, and, the, and the reason i wonder that is because i remember when i was working in ed which was a couple of years ago during the code brown <laughs> when the hospital systems were you know really struggling yep. not that they're you know, hunky-dory now, but it was it was a, you know, pretty... Extra brown. Mm, mm, <laughs> uh, pretty chaotic time and there was a lot of ambulance ramping yeah. and, um, you know, ambul- uh, patients who'd come in by ambulance were waiting quite a long time to be admitted to emergency departments and I remember seeing paramedics sitting around in the ED for hours and hours and hours and hours and, hours, and I thought, these poor... This is not why they got into the job, you know, <laughs> to sit around in an emergency department for hours and hours, essentially babysitting. Um, so, I guess could you talk a bit to you know the you, you mentioned that it changes a lot every day and there's a variety, but the, the excitement, you know, how do you how do you manage that? And then the kind of highs and lows of sometimes there being a lot of paperwork and a slower pace. No. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's a, certainly uh, a bit of a roller coaster, mm. that's for sure. Um, so, right now, the, the role I'm in is uh, more like coordinating project management, a lot to do with it, which is very different to our normal day-to-day life. Um, and it's, it's taken me a lot to adapt into that um, because I'm used to that high, you know, heightened kind of adrenaline, that um, focus, and then t- like a rest kind of period, I guess, in between um, I, I've done this for 13 years and that's kind of my normal now. And um, in a way, I kind of enjoy that, that I have that opportunity to focus on one person, do my job, and then I have that reprieve where I can just do my paperwork, have a cup of tea if I get time, um, <laughs> if we don't get a job before I finish it. Yeah. Um, and um, and then on to the next one. So, yeah, it is certainly a roller coaster of highs and lows, but I, I like that it's not that constant um, height. Uh, of adrenaline, that, that would be hard to sustain. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah.
0: Now we are on Radiotherapy Triple R. It's ten twenty eight a.m. We are going to quickly go to a couple of announcements. And we're going to come back to Jessica, now we haven't even begun to start our actual proper interview with you about CPR and defibrillators and everything else. So we're going to have to do a little speed chat afterwards <laughs> before we then go on to beat it as a party. So back with you shortly.
3: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Jessica just um just in that last
0: little piece, I want to ask you about heart attacks, cardiac arrest, the difference mm-hmm. and also, what as a community um, we can or should be doing about this? Um, in the little media release I read from you, it said that every day around 20 Victorians suffer a cardiac arrest and only one in 10 survive.
1: Yeah, correct. So 20 a day. Yeah, yeah. What? So, uh, you know, that includes kind of everyone, uh, you know, maybe those where it's a little bit more expected and others where it's not so much. Um, so, but yeah, it's, it's, it's huge numbers when you put it like that, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, that's right. So really um, what we find is the earlier you start CPR, the better outcome for that patient. And then in on top of the CPR is also using a defibrillator. So if early CPR and early defibrillation is is commence before ambulance arrive. Uh, the patient's 70% more likely to survive.
0: So I have a question about that. So if I'm just walking down the street, how do I know that someone's having a heart attack? They're not having a panic attack or a seizure or they've fainted, for example. So it is difficult to
1: tell from the bystanders perspective. So we have, I won't go into it, but we have what's called differentials, which um, are uh, different conditions that can present with similar symptoms or crossover as symptoms. Um, So, you know, of course, we come with all our fancy you know, contraptions and machines and beepy things and uh, we can uh, figure it out with a little bit more um, clarity, I guess. Um, but uh, if you're talking about, you know, which you mentioned before, the difference between a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, I um, will might focus on that one because that's a quite a common question amongst people. So uh, you can have a heart, a heart attack can lead to cardiac arrest, but more often than not it doesn't. So most people that we have that have a heart attack, which is there's different types as well. And I won't go into the technicalities of it all, but uh most of the people we have that are suffering heart attack or heart attack symptoms will carry on and when we see them they're, you know, up and walking around or talking. Um so it's there's different causes of cardiac arrest and it's not always because of a heart attack. Um, so the other question you're talking about, you know, if you see somebody maybe collapsed on, on the ground, um, how you might know whether they're in a cardiac arrest, uh, having a cardiac arrest or some other condition, um, what we kind of a good way to tell is to see if they're conscious and to see if they're breathing or breathing normally, um, so to tell if they're conscious, we give them a little—not not too viciously. We don't want to be shaking somebody, some unfortunate soul that's on the ground. Uh, <laughs> so just a bit of a shake on the shoulder, and uh, have you know, are you awake? Can you open your eyes? Um, if they're not responding to you, no moaning and groaning, no movement, then uh, we say they're unconscious. Um, And not breathing or not breathing normally, you can look, listen, feel. So you can look at their chest movement, rise and fall. You can feel uh, their breath on your hand or on your cheek if you're looking um, down their chest. You have your uh, ear close to their mouth and looking down their chest, and you can hear their uh, breathing as well. So if they're not breathing within 10 seconds or maybe only have one breath, small breath in that 10 seconds, then they're not breathing or not breathing normally. We're not checking pulses anymore. Um, we find that it just it just takes too long, and unless you have uh, that uh, pre-existing training, they 're quite hard to find. Mm, you can find them on sure. yourself very easily because mm. you're used to that, but everyone has very different anatomy. Mm. Um, and then if people aren't sure, they might not start. Mm. So we unconscious not breathing or not breathing normally, you start uh, chest compressions um, and mouth to mouth. No, we're not doing mouth to mouth anymore. Yeah. So, um, and that's been for a while, but I think COVID really set that in stone that we don't want to be harming ourselves um, to help someone else. Like, and that can sound a bit callous, uh, but if we harm ourselves, then we can't help this person. And then we
4: need more resources to help us. Just a couple of points I wanted to add for listeners is um, you mentioned the sort of heart attack is something that Someone might experience while they're awake and conscious, and they're the things that we classically look for: things like chest pain, shortness of breath, nausea, dizziness. So those are the things that you will feel, and and if you do have symptoms concerning for that, please call triple zero. Cardiac arrest means your heart has stopped beating. So a, a heart attack can lead to cardiac arrest, but a cardiac arrest means your heart has stopped beating, and that is definitely a life threatening. Uh, If not, you know you're already dead. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Um, condition to be in. And in terms of responding to someone, if you know we've talked a little bit about looking to assess for breathing, there's an acronym that people can remember that I think is very helpful, and it's Doctor's ABC. D for Doctor is the first step is to assess for danger, and that means Mm. don't put yourself in danger. If someone's in the middle of the road and there's traffic whizzing around, don't don't be reckless. You know, the first thing is to look after yourself. R response. Is the person responding? As Jessica said, are they conscious or unconscious? And the S I think is really important is send for help. And in, if you're out and about, that's call triple zero. You know, don't yep. do this by yourself. Yep. If you call triple zero, the person on the phone will help you with the rest of the instructions of, of how to act. And I think, you know, what Jessica was saying about assessing for breathing and starting CPR, those things are all super super important. But I really just want the public to know that you you don't have to do this alone please Mm. call triple zero and they will help help is available
1: yeah so they stay on the phone to you the whole time they won't hang up the phone they'll get your phone number as well in case anything happens they can call you back Mm. um and we also recommend that you put it on speakerphone so that you've got two hands and anyone around you can help as well and and listen to the instructions
0: and i think what's so useful about that is because people are scared of doing harm
1: yeah. So the thing is, with these patients, as just said, that their hearts, you know, stopped or ineffective. So you ultimately, you're not going to cause them more harm than they're already in. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you don't do anything, they're they're going to pass away. But if you try your best and it, you know in good faith, you try mm-hmm. your best, then you're not going to make the situation worse. That's all you can all you can do.
0: And can I ask just before we um, kind of probably have to wrap and move on to our song and next guest is are we still using the bgs yes yeah we are staying alive yeah so that one's
1: that one's a good one to keep so uh we, that's the if you go to the beat that's the pace that we need so that's right. 100 to 120 beats per minute which is the ideal uh, cpr rate to uh,
0: help these people and it helps you kind of feel good while you you know just don't it sing to... it out loud <laughs> it's
1: my maybe not the uh
0: <laughs> the time yeah okay well i would love to speak to you for the whole extra hour um, but I reckon we're going to have to say thanks heaps that was just great anything you else so you want to add to that I just wheels? wondered if you've got
4: one last takeaway that we haven't covered
0: that you yeah. you know on your
4: soapbox one last thing you'd really like the public to know yeah.
1: well oh that's oh there's so many <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have three pages of notes in front of it. <laughs> um, but one one thing you know if we're talking about uh, CPR and AED is um you know, make sure you know you know where your closest defibrillator is, um, and if you have a defibrillator that um, isn't known, then we can't use it to help somebody. So uh, you can go to register my AED at ambulance.vic.gov.au and uh, register your defibrillator. So Good Sam, Good Sam Responders, have a look into that as well, um, community responders that can help with CPR. My sister does um, that. That's wonderful. a good thing. Yeah. yeah, Oh, it's it's we've saved lives directly mm. related to Good Sam Responders. Um, if you're familiar with CPR over 18 and have a smartphone, you can download the Good Responder app, save lives, um, and also register your ADs so that people know where they are in the community and mm. our triple zero. Call takers can direct you to them.
0: That is absolutely great. Amazing. Thank you, Jessica. That's really valuable stuff. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me so much. No, you're welcome.
3: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. We are with Professor Peter as a party. Well, hello,
0: Peter. Hello. <laughs> uh, now, Peter's got a ridiculous number of credentials, and I'm not going to go through them because otherwise we'll have no time to actually talk. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Peter, um, among other things, leads an international program of research in adolescent um, health and well-being. Mm. So the first question I want to ask you, Peter, or talk about is the difference between adolescence in the first world and the developing world.
2: It's a great question and I think for a long time we've thought that adolescence is very much a, a Western idea, a Western construct and that, um, you know, the kinds of um, health issues that we think about, um, you know, that adolescents experience, so particularly mental health problems, you know, are things that happen more in settings like Australia. But I think what we've realised more and more and really over the last 15 or 20 years now is that adolescence is this really important developmental stage. So, um, you know, it's a time when we transition through puberty, but it's also a time where we form new relationships, um, where we transition from education to employment. Many people start their own families as well. Um, And that is extending across the globe. So people are staying in education longer um, and transitioning into that sort of adult role at at a later stage. But what we've also understood, you know, in the last you know, 10, 15, 20 years or so is that there are really important brain developments that continue all the way into the mid-20s as well. And so there's this recognition that adolescence is actually a human universal. Um, it happens everywhere, to everyone, to all of us. We all were adolescents. Some of us haven't grown up yet. <laughs> and, um, and and I think that, you know, what we also have understood more is that there are lots of health issues, health needs that young people across the globe face um, that we haven't really paid attention to for a long time. You know, so for many young people across the globe, you know, injuries are a really important um, cause of poor health. And for many young people across the globe, there's a excess risk of communicable disease, so particularly things like HIV, tuberculosis. Um, that, and that's, that's really been a focus of some recent work that we've done um, to really sort of help um, illustrate more, you know, what are some of the health issues that young people face across the globe so um, so absolutely, I think that we are increasingly understanding that adolescent health is an important issue globally and that young people across the globe face really important, some common issues, but also some really important context-specific issues as well.
0: Absolutely, and I'm really interested to... You know, you've just put out this article um, about these global efforts to reduce infectious diseases yep. and how there's a real focus traditionally on the under-fives, but mm. you're wanting to shift that. Before we get into that side... What kind of got you into this kind of work and sure. like why have you, Why did you go down this incredible and unusual pathway? Well,
2: I think you flagged earlier, Susan, you know, I've taken a bit of a scenic tour yeah. <laughs> to get into where I, where <laughs> I have. Um, I'll give it a bit of a potted history story here. But um, so when I was a young boy, so about the age of Seb, who's sitting here today with us, um, my mum or our nana, Seb, uh, was really sick. So she had a, an acoustic neuroma, a brain tumour. So I was in and out of hospital all the time. Um, seeing, you know, the medical staff, the nursing staff take care of her. And I thought, gee, this is really cool. I'd love to do that. I trained in paediatrics. I spent some time working in the Western Pacific region. So I worked a lot in the Solomon Islands um, and Timor-Leste. Um, but actually there was something that happened when I was over there that really helped change my thinking. And um, so I was on call for the for the hospital, for Solomon Islands Hospital, um, and I had a knock on the door. Um, and so I opened the door and there was a young, young person, you know, standing there. And he said, look, are you the doctor on call tonight? I said, I am. And he said, look, my girlfriend's come to visit and we're going to be romantic and I need some help. And I said, well, I'm not sure how I can help you in this. You know, that's not really my thing. And he said, well, look, I'm really worried about HIV. I've seen all the things, you know, I've, I've seen all the materials, you know, um, we're not abstaining, you know, we've got different partners and I need to get a condom and I don't know how to get one. Mm. And it really occurred to me that if such a basic you know, such a basic intervention is so inaccessible for young people that you know, what other issues are young people facing mm. that, you know, we just don't know about and we aren't actually responding to. And the more I tried to look and try to understand, the less I found, mm. which kind of helped me change my direction into more research and public health and really trying to use health data to define, you know, what are some of the needs for young people where are some of the opportunities to actually intervene? Where should where should good public policy mm-hmm. be focusing?
0: And kind of knowing you, I know that you're not a data geek, and I know you're very much a people person as well, which is
2: great. It's a very have... kind thing to say. I think I've moved you to a data geek, but <laughs> what people would say. <laughs>
0: I'm understanding like it, but you've got both sides to you. And I guess in that, you know, you talk about this person that's he's a real mm. that, that was a real memorable time for yep. you, um, and you've done a heap of work in other parts. Is there a kind of a, other? Is there a most significant kind of things that come to mind of your experiences on your scenic journey?
2: I mean, there are, there are a couple of things I suppose yeah. I've learned as I've been going across uh, through this work. You know, I think that when I first started really focusing my career in youth health, a big part of that was really trying to um, understand and define what we need to do to improve young people's health. My, my thinking has changed quite a bit, actually, and I've just been blown away, constantly been blown away by you know, the incredible ideas that young people have Mm. in terms of, you know, how we can actually build a better future. Um, And so I think that, um, you know, I work with many young people across many different settings and I'm, you know, always, always amazed by just their, the the thinking and, and, you know, just really incredible solutions to what can seem to be really hard problems to solve. So I've certainly been inspired by that. I do a lot of work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations um, and I have just been constantly blown away by the kindness, the generosity and the forgiveness that a lot of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that I work with have. I think they're the most outstanding people that I work with. Um, and I've, I've learned so much, I think, you know, working with these populations. And then I've just worked with some really incredible, um, you know, academics as well, and so uh, Prof George Patton, who sadly passed away last year, um, was a really important mentor for me. And he really pushed me to always think and to always, um, you know, really strive for the best quality data to actually help inform a problem. And I think that, that they have been some of the mm-hmm. the really important sort of um, things along the way that have helped me get to where I, where I am now.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that's so – That's that's really nice, and I love the fact that you kind of that that inspiration you get from young people to actually solve their own problems and work Mm. with them, and that's really intrinsic to the way that you work. So, moving on to that most recent article you've had published, is why is it um, that traditionally? Uh, the focus has always been on the under fives, and why is it that that's kind of what? What's the need to change that to the small middle aged group?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think there's a, it's an old saying, you know, what's measured and what's reported gets mm. done. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so for a long time we have measured, um, you know, communicable disease amongst young children globally. You know, so global health policy, so the Millennium Development Goals, the Sustainable Development Goals now, all have really good indicators around the burden of diarrhoea, the burden of pneumonia in young children. And so it follows then the global policy focuses on these issues, the funding focuses on these issues, um, and that's where a lot of the action has been. Um, To go back a couple steps, you know, in the 2016 Lancer Commission on Adolescent Health and Wellbeing, um, which we led here through the University of Melbourne and the uh, Children's Research Institute, that um, one thing that we tried to do there was define the health needs for adolescents globally. And we actually found that there are many, many young people across the globe that live in settings where there's a large burden of communicable disease. And so we were really interested to try to unpack that. And when we started to do that, we actually found that it hadn't really been done for older children either. Mm. So there had been this focus on under fives, mm. but no one had really told the story of what does communicable disease look like for the first 25 years of life?
4: Mm.
2: And that's what this paper's really been focusing on. So it really highlights that You know, communicable disease control amongst children and adolescents needs to be a focus of global policy. So 60% of all communicable disease across the globe is amongst children and adolescents. Um, And we found as well that, um, you know, the traditional focus has been on under fives. That still is the population where a lot of the mortality
4: Mm. from conditions
2: like diarrhoea and pneumonia is globally.
4: I feel that it's kind of considered like a good bang for your buck age yes, group, totally. right? Like there's the most most effective interventions at that age, but it, it doesn't mean that there's no bang after that either, right? It's not like kids turn totally. five and that's it. You don't care anymore.
2: <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right, Jess. But I think what we've seen as well over the last 20 years has been that there have been rapid reductions as a result of those mm. interventions which showed great bang for your buck in children under 5 mm. but there haven't been those reductions in older children and adolescents so there's been a shift now in mm. disease burden mm. from younger children to older children and adolescents and so you know you know there are 0.7 million deaths a year to children and adolescents older than 5 due to communicable diseases wow. so if we're going to really address this as a global community we need to be focusing on on um, these older children and adolescents as well
0: and the other thing I wonder about is is mortality and de- is death the key marker, or are there other things that we should it's also? A
2: terrific <laughs> question. <laughs> it's a terrific Come question. I'm
0: on fire today. You are on fire today.
2: <laughs> so, look, this is I think one thing that we really tried to do in this study that we published as well, where we did report mortality, but we also reported morbidity. So we we reported the t- you know the years of healthy life lost due to illness due to these communicable diseases. And there's a huge burden globally. And there's a huge burden, particularly in older children. So for
0: example, what sorts of things?
2: So for example, like if you think about, um, like let's talk about pneumonia, for example. So traditionally we've measured pneumonia in global health policy as a number of deaths due to pneumonia in children under five. But we actually know that pneumonia causes lots of illness for older children and adolescents. And it causes time off work, Mm. time off school. Mm -hmm. Um, And for many people it can actually, you know, if you have, um, you know, repeated Pneumonia infections; it can really have a profound impact on health and well-being, and so we tried to we included, you know, a measure of that as well in this study. And what it also brings into scope then is communicable disease control in high-income settings like Australia. Mm. So we've seen, for example, you know, recently we've all lived through COVID, you know, um, and we've seen that there's a lot of morbidity from a condition like this, and there's actually a lot of morbidity from Conditions like upper respiratory tract infections, skin infections, that we often don't measure and report, but actually do cause a lot of ill health for yeah. a lot of people.
0: And and by morbidity, I think it's helpful to unpack exactly a bit more what you kind of mean by that.
2: Sure. So morbidity, I suppose, is um, illness um, that doesn't re- that doesn't result in death. Yeah.
4: So but affects quality of life and affects function. Of life. And, yeah. You mentioned before um, TB and HIV. Yes. Do you want to? Is there anything else you want to say about that? I guess it's not something I would have um, intuitively thought that's an adolescent problem, but when you raise it, of course, it is.
2: Absolutely, yeah. So I think that's a, that's a really important finding from this study, is that you know, at, and, and again, globally in terms of helping frame global health policy, that um, you know, diarrhoea and pneumonia need to remain a really important focus. Um, Malaria does as well in certain settings. Um, But what we see as well is that um, for older children and adolescents that tuberculosis and HIV become really important uh, causes of mortality and morbidity. We've had a focus on HIV control for some adolescents, um, but certainly what we um, see now is that there's a, a big group of young people that were started on antiretroviral therapy as Young children mm. who are now growing into adolescence, um, and and that ongoing care is often not. Um, necessarily prioritised by um, by funding and by, by services. And so I think it's a really important focus.
4: And, of course, all the social aspects of a chronic illness in Absolutely. adolescence, it becomes so much more complicated. You know, we know from a, a high-income country perspective that, for example, kids with diabetes, often they have quite poor control of their diabetes during adolescence because it's part of that kind of rebellion, seeking independence, uh, don't tell me what to do, I'm not going to take my medicine when I'm supposed to, which is a natural part of adolescence, but when you've got that chronic illness Illness kind of underlying everything. It, it, you know, the consequences can be more significant. And I imagine with something mm. like HIV, which is like a chronic illness in the same way, in that it requires, you know, sometimes lifelong medication and and um, contact with the health system. I wonder if there's those sort of social aspects too.
2: I think I think that's part of the story. I think the other part of the story and a big part of the story actually is that we often. Health services are often framed as paediatric services and adult services, yeah. and there's a big gap that people fall between as they're transitioning mm-hmm. between those. Um, and and I think that that transition care is something that we do, you know, we do well in Australia mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in some settings. Um but it's a big gap, I think, in yeah. many health systems. I completely
0: agree. And because of the, you know, you talked about the unique healthcare needs and the very, very difference in paediatric and adult services. Yeah. You know, we certainly see this in cancer care as well. You know, and you talk about First World is how different that, you mm-hmm. know, those unique challenges. Yeah. We are nearing... We're nearing wrapping time. We are. <laughs> yeah. I think it's time to wrap. I know this right. is terrible, Peter.
2: <laughs> <laughs> wonderful to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation.
0: <laughs> oh, we have loved having both of you on the show. Um, it's it, it's the kind of conversations that we need to bring you back on a regular basis. I would and love to come back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, three pages of notes.
3: <laughs> so you're already ready.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, as I said, you're both wonderful people. It's great to um, to, to to see you both again and Thank you for all your great work. Generally speaking, as well as being on the show, Cyber it's been beautiful to see you in person. It feels like a long time. And
4: thank you for joining us this morning on Triple R, three Triple R. This is Radiotherapy. Remember, we've got Facebook. You can listen to us on the podcast. We've got Instagram, Twitter. Not that I really participate in any of those, but (laughs) it's there. It is.
0: (laughs) Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.